Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for standing by. I'd like to welcome everyone to the Canaccord Genuity Group, Inc. Fiscal 2021 Fourth Quarter and Year End Results Conference Call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question during this time, simply press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. If you would like to withdraw your question, please press the pound key. If you have any difficulty hearing the conference, please press star, then zero for operator assistance at any time. As a reminder, this conference call is being re- broadcast live online and recorded. I would now like to turn the the conference call over to Mr. Dan Davio, President and CEO. Please go ahead, Mr. Davio. Thank you, Operator, and thanks for everyone joining us for today's call. As always, I'm joined by Don McFadden, our Chief Financial Officer. Following the overview of our fourth quarter and fiscal 2021 results, both Don and I would be pleased to answer questions from analysts and institutional investors. During today's discussion, we'll refer to our earnings release and MD&A, copies of which have been made available for download on CDAR and on the Investor Relations section of our website at cgf.com. Within our update, certain reported information has been adjusted to exclude significant items in order to provide a transparent and comparative view of our operating performance. These adjusted items are non-IFRS financial measures. Please refer to our notice regarding forward-looking statements and the description of non-IFRS measures that appears on page one of our investor relations presentation and also in our MD&A. I expect that you've all had an opportunity to review our fourth quarter and full fiscal year disclosures that were made available last night. Our fiscal fourth quarter was our strongest on record by a wide margin and this contributed to an already exceptional fiscal year performance. During the three-month period, we earned record firm-wide revenue of $692 million, a year-over-year increase of 117%. This brought our full fiscal year revenue to $2 billion, up 63% when compared to last year, an all-time record for Canaccord Genuity. While broader market tailwinds supported increased demand for small and mid-cap equities in our core focus sectors, our results are a testament to the power of our platform and the incredible efforts put forth by our employees at every level of the organization. I really could not be prouder of our team of over 2,300 people who have worked tirelessly from their remote offices around the world to support our clients, while never losing focus of our shared priorities. Our fourth quarter and fiscal year results clearly demonstrate that we are operating at a higher level than any period in our history. When measured by revenue, net income, profit margins, earnings per share, and employee productivity. The business we have built is clearly demonstrating that we will have higher highs in buoyant markets as well as higher lows during softer markets. Excluding significant items, 
pre-tax net income for the fourth fiscal quarter amounted to $183 million, an amount that exceeds all prior full fiscal year results. This translates to diluted earnings per share of $1.20 for the three-month period, bringing our fiscal 2021 diluted EPS to $2.48, our highest on record. Turning to expenses, we benefited from the enhanced cost savings driven by the extended remote work environment and the restrictions that it placed on travel and entertainment over the fiscal year. That said, we've also maintained a strong focus on the efficiencies and cost discipline measures that we implemented prior to the pandemic. Despite the substantially higher levels of business activity throughout the year, on an adjusted basis, our non-compensation expense as a percentage of revenue were 19% for the fiscal year, a reduction of 10.6 percentage points from last year. Looking forward, we expect to maintain many of the efficiencies that we incorporated over the year as more of our employees and clients return to offices. Our adjusted firm-wide compensation ratio was 57% for the fourth fiscal quarter, a decrease of 5.1 percentage points compared to last year, reflecting the increase in revenue relative to fixed staff costs. Our compensation ratio for the fiscal year was 61.6%, which reflects the impact of certain share-based compensation programs, which are affected by higher share price, including performance share units granted in prior periods. I will also note that our effective tax rate for the fiscal year was 27.1% compared to 13.5% last year. Last year's rate was exceptionally low as it reflected the recognition of tax benefits from carry forwards in prior years. This year's rate reflects the increased profitability earned in our higher tax rate jurisdictions. The dynamic nature of capital markets requires us to maintain a healthy level of capital flexibility to support our business activities. And this was especially important in a year where we experienced record levels of underwriting and trading activity. Having said that, we are committed to deploying capital in ways that will provide increased returns for our shareholders. I am pleased to report that our board of directors has approved a quarterly common share dividend of seven and a half cents bringing our full year dividend to 25 cents, an increase of 25% from last year. During the fourth quarter, we also announced the planned redemption of our unsecured senior subordinated debentures, which were set to mature in 2023. This has resulted in a reduction of our average fully diluted shares to 108 million for the current year, down from an average of 128 million during our prior fiscal year. In all, our fiscal 2021 capital deployment initiatives will result in a return of $192 million to CF shareholders and debenture holders. With that, let's turn to the performance of our operating businesses. Our global capital markets business earned revenue of $1.3 billion for the fiscal year. Our U.S., Canadian, and Australian businesses all earn record revenues with year-over-year -year increases of 69%, 117%, and 
and 376% respectively. Investment banking accounted for half of our total capital markets revenue for the fiscal year. We participated in 713 transactions globally, raising proceeds of $86 billion for growth companies during the 12-month period. The breadth of our capital markets capabilities, including mid-market IPOs, follow-ons, and SPACs, positioned us to capture a meaningful share of the stronger levels of market issuance over the 12-month period with the fourth quarter coming in as our strongest on record for investment banking activities. During the three-month period, our investment banking division achieved revenue of $266 million, almost seven times the revenue earned in the same period a year ago. And this was driven by the remarkable new issue environment. Volatile markets led to a reduction in advisory activities over the first half of the fiscal year but the third and fourth quarters presented an opportunity to deliver on a very strong pipeline, bringing our full fiscal year revenue from this segment to $193 million, just 6% lower than the record set in our previous fiscal year. Fourth quarter advisory revenues amounted to $65 million, the second highest quarterly results on record. The strongest contributors to advisory revenues were our U.S. and Canadian businesses for both the three and 12-month periods. Based on the existing pipeline, we continue to see robust levels of M&A activity as we begin our new fiscal year. Our global trading teams outperformed throughout the fiscal year, but most notably in the fourth quarter. Trading revenue for the three-month period reached $87 million, an increase of 148 percentage points compared to the same period a year ago. Firm-wide trading revenue for the full fiscal year amounted to $246 million, a year-over-year improvement of 126%. The primary driver of this performance was our U.S. desk through our international equities group which contributed revenue of $75 million for the fourth quarter and $210 million for the fiscal year, increases of 98 and 109% respectively. Our Canadian trading team also delivered outstanding performance with record annual revenue of $23 million. Firm-wide revenue from our commission and fee activities improved by 39% year-over-year to $212 million. We attribute this increase to the outstanding efforts by all our teams who have worked hard to increase our buy-side commission wallet share, as well as the very active trading environment, which drove high volume and volatility. Over the year, CG pivoted quickly to deliver innovative opportunities for our clients in a completely virtual environment, including corporate access and conferences, which drew record attendance, as well as timely and thematic research pieces from our award-winning analysts and strategists. The outstanding performance delivered by all segments of our global capital market division contributed to record profitability for both the fourth quarter and the full fiscal year. Excluding significant items, the pre-tax net income contribution from our combined capital markets business 
amounted to $155 million for the fourth quarter and $325 million for the full fiscal year. Substantial increases from the $15 million and the $60 million recorded in the comparable periods last year. Excluding significant items, pre-tax profit margins in our capital market segment increased over each of the four fiscal quarters, reaching a peak of 32% in the fourth quarter. And we ended the fiscal year with a pre-tax profit margin of 24.8%. While margins in this segment will fluctuate with the pace of activities in our core sectors and geographies, we are committed to generating a greater proportion of our long-term earnings from higher margin activities, such as advisory, in addition to the development of ancillary products and services that complement our mid-market offering. Throughout the year, our global wealth management business also continued to deliver impressive growth. At the end of the fiscal year, firm-wide client assets grew to a record of $89 billion, an increase of 46% compared to the same period a year ago. Revenue earned by this segment amounted to $199 million for the fourth quarter and $663 million for the fiscal year, increases of 44% and 29% respectively. Excluding significant items, our combined wealth management businesses contributed pre-tax net income of $45 million in the fourth quarter and $135 million for the fiscal year, representing year-over-year increases of 170% and 70%. An outstanding performance was achieved by our Canadian wealth business, which reported total client assets of $32 billion, an increase of $14 billion, or 75%, compared to the end of the previous fiscal year. Excluding significant items, this business achieved record pre-tax profit margins of almost 22% in the fourth fiscal quarter, with pre-tax net income of $23 million for the three-month period, bringing the full year adjusted pre-tax net income contribution to $63 million. The excellent partnership between our capital markets and wealth management businesses in Canada created an opportunity for our investment advisors to participate in the robust environment for new issue activity. This drove 171% year-over-year increase in the investment banking revenue earned by this division to $107 million for the fiscal year. The average book per IA team grew by 75% over fiscal 2021 to $222 million. This team also achieved impressive growth in its discretionary assets under management, which grew by 57% compared to last year. The advantages and opportunities provided by our platform have been consistently evidenced in the growth of this business. Multiple consecutive years of growth and profitability and critical investments to advance our technology offering have continued to be instrumental in attracting established IA teams to the CG platform. As you know, during this past quarter, we reached out to the board of RF Capital in an effort to discuss a possible combination of our Canadian wealth businesses. While we continue to believe that a business combination with RF Capital 
would provide a compelling value creation opportunity for the employees and shareholders of both businesses, we've made a decision not to continue in our efforts to try to engage with the RF Capital's board of directors. We will continue to focus on our recruiting strategy and organic growth opportunities, which have outpaced the broader industry. Our wealth business in the UK and Crown dependencies has been a steady contributor of growth and profitability through a range of market environments, and fiscal 2021 was no exception. Client assets in this business increased 31% year-over-year to $52 billion. Excluding significant items, fourth quarter pre-tax net income grew to a record of $19 million, bringing the full-year contribution to $65 million, an increase of 15% from the prior year. During the past quarter, we were also pleased to announce a significant investment from HPS, which adds a partner to provide flexibility and options for funding the future growth of this business at the regional level. We expect that this investment will close in the next several weeks. In April, we announced the acquisition of the investment management business of Adam and Company, marking our entry to the Scottish market with a deeply established brand and client assets of $2.9 billion. The acquisition is expected to be accretive to our adjusted earnings and is on track to close around the end of our second fiscal quarter. And finally, managed assets in our Australian wealth business increased by 76% year over year to $4.2 billion as CG gains momentum as the premier brand for small and mid-cap investors in the region. Fourth quarter revenue in this business increased by 34% year-over-year to $17 million, bringing full-year revenue to $62 million, up from $24 million in the prior year, which included about five months of activity following the acquisition of Patterson in October 2019. The addition of Patterson Securities last year, which we purchased for $23 million, significantly expanded our Australian wealth platform. This business has continued to be a positive contributor of adjusted pre-tax net income, which amounted to $7.3 million for the fiscal year. The strong performance of this business is also driving compelling recruiting opportunities in key Australian markets. Looking ahead, we will continue to invest with discipline in the growth of all our wealth management businesses, which are fundamental to our strategy of enhancing our long-term earnings potential. We will be opportunistic in our approach to capital deployment with a disciplined focus on initiatives to increase the long-term value of our business while upholding our commitment of returning excess capital to our shareholders. While several factors point towards the continuance of a supportive marketplace for growth and value stocks in our core focus sectors, we expect that some of these tailwinds can moderate in the coming quarters and that activity will return to previous levels. Having said that, we are very pleased to be starting fiscal 2022 with a stronger wealth management franchise and fewer common shares on a fully diluted basis. Across our operations, we have a market-leading franchise in our core sectors and geographies, 
and compelling prospects for expanding our product capabilities. We continue to see strong engagement from our institutional and retail clients and have a solid pipeline of ECM and advisory mandates. I am confident that the strategic decisions that we have made to transform our business mix, coupled with disciplined investments in our growth and relentless dedication of our teams, will continue to deliver outstanding results for our shareholders. Thank you for your continued support. With that, Don and I will be pleased to take your questions. Operator, please open the lines. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we will now conduct a question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question, press star and the number one on your telephone keypad. If you would like to withdraw your question, press the pound key. There will be a brief pause while we compile the Q&A roster. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Your first question comes from Rob Goff from Echelon. Your line is open. Um, thank hey, you, Rob. And, uh, uh, good morning, and congratulations on the quarter and the year. It's just uh, incredible performance. Um, Thanks so much, Rob. Um, you, you made some references to it, and this may sound like a bit of a macro question, but you know, given all that has happened over the last quarter and year, can you discuss how that may have impacted your capital allocation stance, be it defense, offense, and priorities, be it capital markets, be it wealth management? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll answer it at the most broad level. It's a great question, Rob, but I'll answer it at the most broad level and maybe turn it over to Don to be a little bit more specific on our capital. We've obviously made a lot of money. Uh, we've made a lot of net income and we've made a lot of cash, uh, and you can see that in our results. Um, we've obviously been through a very buoyant capital markets period where you know we use our capital to support our underwriting and trading activity, and you can see the results of that. You know, that being said, our fundamental strategy has not changed. Um, we are going to deploy our excess capital to grow our wealth business. That hasn't changed. We're going to continue to do that, and we've got opportunities throughout the globe to grow our wealth business. And to the extent that we don't have an intelligent place you know, to deploy our capital with excess returns, we're going to return it to shareholders. You've seen an increase in our dividend twice this year. You've seen a huge buyback of our convert. We continue to buy back our stock. And that activity hasn't changed either. So our fundamental priorities, and we just got through our board meeting the other day, have not changed from a capital allocation perspective. Don, do you want to provide other details around, you know, excess capital and, uh, and the like? Uh, well, I think I think what you've articulated, um, Dan, is exactly the strategy and the plan that we um, we first specifically articulated a couple of years ago, and we've sort of progressed along that plan. And as you said, nothing has really changed. Um, you know, the capital derived from profits obviously resides, um, you know, in the capital U.S. or in the in Canada, in um, U.S. and Australia. So. We have strategies to move those, you know, that capital um, around the, the globe, so to speak, in the areas where it's most opportunistic. But 
as as Dan said, the strategy and the the um, plan is to opportunistically, you know, deploy capital towards growing the wealth business and then excess capital through dividends and share buybacks. Thank you. And if I may, um, a follow-up is a little bit more micro. Um, could you discuss some of the factors behind the you know, $87 million in principal trading to you know, just the international platform aspect of it and the sustainability of that? Thank you. Yeah, that, that that market, you know, pri- you know, we've got lots of what we call principal trading books. Uh, they're, they're not particularly, uh, as you know, Rob, risk risk taking desks. They they're principal trading because they're making markets and in, in various things. The the largest driver for that is in the United States, and that is through our international equity group, a group that's been together for literally decades and been with us for over a decade. Um, you know, it was an it was an incredibly active market. They tend to participate. They tend to do very well when there's volatility in the market, and when when there's you know large retail flows. Our biggest customers in that business are the large retail shops, you know, in the U.S. And we aggregate and um, and trade their international flows and their over-the-counter flows, like you've seen in Robinhood and other situations like that. You've seen immense amount of retail interest. We've benefited from that. Obviously, throughout you know that group has gotten bigger and taken market share as well. So some of those gains are, are in our view, relatively permanent from a market share perspective. But that business has continued to grow materially for the past eight quarters, from about you know as low as 20 million in revenue a quarter to as much as last quarter 75 million. So you know you've seen the benefits of that, plus the expansions that we've done in that business and some of our other deaths. So, you know, it really is a function of, you know, the retail flow and the volatility. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, is it going to be at that level in perpetuity? I doubt it. But um, it's going to be elevated from where you may have seen it, you know, uh, six quarters ago or four quarters ago. You know, it'll, it'll continue to operate at an elevated pace. Great. Thank you very much. I'll jump back in queue. Cheers. Thanks, Rob. And your next question will come from Jeff Sandwick from Comark Securities. Your line is open. Hi. Good morning, everybody. Hey, Jeff. Uh, so, Dan, why don't we just continue on with that capital utilization theme there? Um, as you stated, you're you're not going to continue to pursue RF capital for now. So, what's the plan for Canada? You've had a lot of success just poaching advisor teams, and I assume that's that's probably your focus for now. But do you think there's some other Maybe there's some other independents out there. I know it's not a long list, but uh, I assume you've been perhaps chatting with them as well. And, and is that something that might be of interest to do a tuck in with one of those groups? Yeah, I mean, we have m- multiple paths for growth for our Canadian wealth business. Obviously, you've seen our Canadian wealth business. You've seen what it's done. You know, average book per advisor is $222 million up, you know, 18% over the last five years, each and every year, you know, compounded annual growth. Of 18%, you know, the, that book is over, you know, $32 billion. We've made, you know, over $65 million pre-tax in that business. It's a very profitable, successful business. And I, do, and I don't need to remind you, you know, that this is a business that broke even on a good day four years ago. So, you know, it's a very, very profitable business for us. We think we've got unique advantages in that business. Uh, we've invested an immense amount in technology in that business, so that's fantastic. We obviously have married that business to our capital markets business, and there's an incredible amount of synergies in that. 
and um, and you know we we feel that there's a great op- and we own our back office, so we feel that there's a great amount of things we can do in our wealth business. Yes, we can continue to recruit advisors, and we will, and we have a you know reasonably active pipeline in that respect. We've spent um, 135 million dollars, you know, on recruiting advisors. We've invested 350 million dollars in growing our wealth platform globally. So, you know, we've continued to commit a lot of capital to that. But there's other paths for growth as well. You mentioned acquisitions, and clearly we'd be in the market for those. But there's other alternative wealth paths that we need to consider, um, you know, both at the high end and the low end uh, that we're going to continue to pursue. There's other ways to deliver um, wealth advice that we're going to continue to pursue. So I'm being a little, um, a little opaque in my statements intentionally, Jeff, but rest assured, we have five or six different paths to grow our um, to grow our Canadian wealth business. You know, at the end of the day, you know, we we thought Richardson's would be a great acquisition. We thought it'd be a great merger partner. We think there's huge synergies in doing the business. I mean, when we approached them initially, our stock was you know 11 or 11.50. Our stock is clearly substantially higher than that. You know, we can just earn better returns by ourselves. Uh, to be honest, than you know, overreaching and paying uh, more for an acquisition than what than what would make sense. So that wasn't an exact answer to your question, but I think it's the best I can give you at this stage, Jeff. Sure, uh, m- makes sense. And, and maybe one other other point here: you continue to talk about um, building a greater contribution of fee-based revenue. Uh, clearly, the the capital markets activity has helped you, uh, uh, you know, help drive the performance this year with the, the commission revenue, but how, how do you get down the path further on more of a fee-based uh, level in the Canadian group there? I mean, it's not an easy thing to shift uh, clients over or advisors over to different models. I mean, is this a long-term goal or, or how, do you, how do you head down that path in, in Canada? Yeah, yeah, great, great question. Um, I'd make a couple of comments. Number one, in the in the current environment, you, you correctly identified. I mean, we did a hundred million dollars. Almost a third of our overall revenue was, you know, deal-based revenue, new issue-based revenue in this environment. So, obviously, when you look at the overall shift between, you know, at, at, um, fee-based and not fee-based, you're going to see a dip in this particular year because of the immense amount of new issue activity. But the vast majority. You know, of the advisors that we brought on board, and remember we brought in 46 teams now, or 47 teams um, of advisors, the vast majority of them are fee-based advisors. So there's just a natural evolution as we bring on people towards the fee-based advisory system. The other uh, point to make is in the context of, you know, a pretty active new issue market and a pretty active and improving, um, um, you know, small cap market, most of our most senior advisors are very, very well versed in kind of taking chips off the table. And and by that, I mean, when you've made a lot of money in the market, you know, peel a significant portion of your client's assets into something that's a lot more stable, arguably fee-based, arguably managed. And that's a trend that we certainly encourage and support. So I think you're going to continue to see the growth of fee-based assets. Now, as a percentage of our overall revenue, you haven't seen it. But certainly, you know, um, from a you know absolute dollar perspective, we've seen huge growth in our fee-based assets, and that's not going to change. We're going to continue to improve that, and there's programs in place in our entire wealth platform uh, to encourage that. 
The other point I would make is we do have a global wealth platform outside of Canada, and we're obviously using the best practices in both the UK and Australia to, you know, to encourage more fee-based assets globally. Okay, and, and maybe one last one on, on the uh, on the wealth side of things. Um, you know, you've done a, a great job of building up the UK. Australia is now, uh, you know, seems to be uh, uh, maturing as a business, and you've expanded there. Have you ever thought about uh, looking south of the border? You, you know, no. the one area where you, you haven't you haven't done any, done anything. Yeah, I mean, we've thought about it. Um, we're not doing it. Um, and I, you know, you and I, I think, have talked about this, Jeff. I just don't think we're big enough, number one, to do it. And number two, I don't see the synergies in the marriage between having a strong wealth platform in the U.S. and a strong capital markets business in the U.S. We've got an incredibly profitable capital markets platform. It is our highest revenue business and until the overperformance in Canada this year. It was our most profitable capital markets business. And we do that all without retail. When we look at our direct competitors in the U.S., most of them don't do not have wealth platforms either. You don't really need a wealth platform to uh, beat and exceed in the U.S. capital market space. There tends not to be a lot of synergies between the two businesses. So it's not a strategic priority. I'll never say never, but um, it, it, you know, it's not on the top list of five strategic priorities in terms of things we're thinking about at this stage. And then maybe one quick one here. I mean, we're now well into your uh, second, or sorry, your first uh, quarter, fiscal quarter this year, and second calendar quarter. I mean, you you mentioned momentum maybe tapering a bit here, but it it seems like still very strong so far year to date. So I know it's always hard to read the tea leaves, but it (laughs) seems like uh, momentum is has continued uh, to, to help you out here into into the into the sort of middle part of 2021. Any any commentary on what you've been seeing? Yeah, I mean, we we obviously have very good visibility around our our M and A pipeline, and and I think I've made the comment in our prepared remarks that we continue to see a pretty active M and A market. Uh, our Q four was our second highest M um, and A uh, quarter on record, and we continue to see a pretty good pipeline of executing mandates. Both our U S. and our Canadian businesses, from an M and A perspective, were up, um, you know, quarter over quarter, year over year the only business that was really down was our UK M&A business. So we continue to see a pretty active M&A pipeline going into uh, this year. From a new issue perspective, you have as much visibility, quite frankly, as as, as I have. Yet, the comment that we see it tapering is meant to be um, more of a future comment than a comment that we're seeing in the market today. We continue to launch IPOs. We continue to launch bot deals. We continue to launch marketed transactions throughout our entire global platform. So that that you know that continues to be in an incredibly busy environment. I guess the point I was I was trying to allude to when I say it softens, I mean we did a billion three in capital markets revenue. We did, you know, six almost six hundred and fifty million, almost half of that in new issue revenue. At the end of this year, do I see us doing six hundred and fifty million dollars of new issue revenue again? I I love that to happen. I just realistically don't see that happening as we get later in the year and um you know we you know this this market recovery kind of peters out a little bit. Great. Okay, thanks for that. Uh, I'll read you. And your next Thank question you. comes from Graham Riding from TD Securities. Your line is open. Hi, good morning. Hi Graham, um, how are you? 
Good, thanks. Good, uh, good growth um, in the Canadian wealth management uh, division in the quarter. Um, was that uh, in part related to some recruitment AUA? Uh, was that a factor, or was that uh, just net flows that was driving the strong growth quarter over quarter? Uh, hi, Graham. It's Don. Um, yeah, I think it's a combination of all those things. I think the we're seeing the benefits from the recruiting activity over the years. Um, and we see that a lot in the um, in the commissions and fees revenue, but also the uh, new issue um, revenue and the ECM activity through our wealth advisors and their client base um, was also a tremendous contributor to the Q4 activity and for the activity in the year. And you can see that sort of um, tracking in parallel to the ECM activity in our Canadian capital markets business. Yeah, but Graham, when you look at our commission and fee line, I think that gives you a pretty good representation of of asset growth, whether it be market asset growth or or you know um, hiring asset growth, and that's up from 430 million to roughly 522 million year over year. Yep, good turn up. And then how about on the UK side? The growth was, uh, <clears throat> I would say, more modest this quarter compared to what we've seen in the, in the past. Were there any, was there any sort of advisor or client attrition there or any color on the UK wealth side? I think, um, Graham, the, the UK is highly fee-based revenue in terms of its uh, revenue base. And at the start of this year, remember, asset values, um, were depressed quite significantly at March 2020 with the uh, turmoil in the market at that particular point in time. And it took several months for that to recover. So during the first part of the year, the first half of the year, revenue was sort of, um, you, you know, somewhat depressed or had, was reduced because of the lower client asset values and the fee-based revenue derived from that. It picked up during the course of the year as asset recoveries, as asset levels recovered and we got back to to levels that um, you know started to exceed where we um, where we were prior to the downdraft last year. And, and Graham, I know you know this, but when as interest rates kind of came down throughout the course of the year, we probably lost about six million dollars in revenue um, year over year from lower interest rates in that in that market, and that would have impacted our overall revenue as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. Fair enough. I was more referring to the uh, to the asset growth quarter over quarter. It seems a bit lower, but uh, that's fine. Um, maybe I could use that theme to to, to focus on uh, Adams and Co. Uh, the acquisition that I think is closing um, shortly. Um, is September. there you know, how, how September? Okay, thanks. How does it compare to your existing platform? You know, is there anything unique? from an operational or financial perspective, or is it fairly consistent with what you've got already? Yeah, incredibly low-risk, consistent acquisition from our perspective. They're on the same back office systems as we are on. It's effectively an asset deal, not a company deal. We're bringing on the people and the assets um, as opposed to you know a whole company with related liabilities. So it's very, very easy integration, very, very easy transition. The only thing unique about it, which is obviously why we want it, is it gets us into the Scottish marketplace, which historically we haven't been in. So it gives us a, a strong foothold there with a fantastic brand to kind of expand into that marketplace. Uh, all discretionary assets, obviously. Okay. Um, understood. And then 
You mentioned uh, excess capital. Uh, how are you measuring that? You know, when I th think about, you know, the proceeds that are coming through from the HPS deal, and then you're going to be paying off your convertible, and then third, you've got this acquisition of Adams and Co. After factoring all those sort of pieces, you know, can you, is there anything you can quantify in terms of how much excess capital you think you'll be sitting on? Um, well, Graham, I think the the as we've as we've always said, the excess capital is really a function of the business activity and the business activity levels. Um, capital and profits is you know deployed in the business to support underwriting activity, trading activity, um, client activity. So as business gets really active, you know, capital is utilized to do that just to support that activity, and as business um, moderates, then um, capital gets 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 freed up because it's not required to support an active underwriting calendar or busy trading desks. So you, you know we always you, you know would would always maintain a buffer and a healthy capital levels to support renewed activity levels as as you know that ebbs and flows. But um, you know as we've always said you know to support the business um, and. Um, Acquisitions such as Adam and Co., and then um, um, excess capital through share buybacks, and you know a um, the strategy always has been to maintain a consistent but growing dividend pace. Yeah, and and just a couple of a couple of things. Number one, as you think about growth in our UK uh, wealth business, our UK and Crown dependency wealth business. Um, Adams and Co. will probably be funded by our existing bank facility there. We're probably not going to require our own capital for that. And even future acquisitions, for the most part, remember, we do have a partner in that business now. And, you know, the, the whole concept of developing a partner in that business was, number one, to give us capital back at the, uh, at the parent level to pursue things like buying back the convert and other, and other, you know, return of capital to shareholders. But also, it gave us access to a higher currency to facilitate acquisitions in that market. So, um, although you know we certainly have the right to continue to write checks to support that business, we also have a partner that has a desire to put out more capital. So, you know, we'll have to see how that plays out. Not on Adams and Co. because it's relatively bite-sized, but may potentially on future acquisitions in that market. We don't see that business requiring parent co-capital for the foreseeable future to grow it. Okay, understood. Uh, and my last one, uh, if I could, just development costs in the quarter. There were some increases in the capital markets division and also within the corporate division. Uh, what does that relate to? And uh, I guess overall, is this a reasonable run rate for development costs on a consolidated? Uh, with development, yeah, I mean, development costs it will naturally be somewhat bumpy. Um, sort of, sort of, it's hard to look at it quarter over quarter. I think we saw some technology initiatives um, flow through the through the development cost line, as well as new hire um, acquisition costs related to new hires and and um, recruiting activity also flows through that particular line. So um, um, it, it's not sort of singly one particular event; it's just sort of a combination of things that ebb and flow, you know, from quarter over quarter. But technology and new hires principally. Okay. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you. 
brings us to the end of our Q&A session today. I would like to turn the call over to Mr. Dan DeVeo for closing remarks. Uh, thanks, Operator, and, and thank you, everybody, for uh, for joining this call today. It's obviously a very exciting time for our company and, quite frankly, for our overall industry. Um, but, you know, this is our year-end results, so we'll put out results again in, in August. Look forward to uh, speaking to you all again then. And um, for that, uh, we will uh, see you soon, and we obviously have an investor day later today. So, Operator, if you can close the lines, I'd appreciate it. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, this concludes the call for today. Thank you for participating. Please do disconnect your lines. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.